If you would please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 20. As we continue on in the book of Genesis this morning, we'll be in Genesis chapter 20. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things in their hearing, and the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered that you have done this thing? Abraham said, Because I thought, Surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, This is the kindness which you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, He is my brother. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you, and before all men you are cleared. Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now here in Genesis chapter 20, we see Abraham slipping into a sin that he had committed before. And we saw back in Genesis chapter 12 how Abraham had traveled down to Egypt during a time of famine. We saw how he feared that the Egyptians would kill him on account of his wife so that they could take her. He told her to say that she was his sister and that on account of that, things would go well for him. And she did. And they did. She did as Abraham had said. She said that she was his sister. 
And if you recall from Genesis 12, they not only spared Abraham's life, but things actually financially went well for Abraham. Pharaoh gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Things went well outwardly for Abraham because Sarah went along with the deception. But you'll recall also that the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with plagues on account of Sarah. Pharaoh is upset when he finds out the truth and he sends Abraham packing out of Egypt. And if you're familiar with Genesis 12, you can't miss the overlap with many of those particulars in the situation here in Genesis chapter 20. Here we have, again, Abraham leaving the place where he was living. This time he was living by the Oaks of Mamre, and now he has come to sojourn in Gerar, and Abraham is worried, as he would later say to Abimelech down in verse 11, he's worried that there's no fear of God in this place and that he would be killed on account of Sarah. And so he and Sarah did the same thing. Abraham said, she is my sister. Sarah said, he is my brother. Same thing happens. The king takes Sarah. The Lord intervenes. As you see in verse 18, the Lord had intervened by closing the wombs of the household of Abimelech. And more obviously, the Lord intervened by coming to Abimelech in a dream. And so here in Genesis 20, we see a few things. We see the sinfulness of unintentional sins We see hope for repeat offenders, and we also find that the foolishness and sinfulness of mankind cannot thwart the certainty of the Lord's plans. And so those will be our three main points for this morning. Number one, the sinfulness of unintentional sins. The sinfulness of unintentional sins. Number two, hope for repeat offenders. Hope for repeat offenders And then thirdly, the certainty of the Lord's plans. Certainty of the Lord's plans. And so first of all, we have the sinfulness of unintentional sins. And we see this with respect to Abimelech. Abimelech took Sarah to be his wife and had not yet consummated the relationship. And yet the Lord still comes to him in verse 3 and says, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken for she is married. Being married to Abraham, she was not eligible to be married to Abimelech. Under the circumstances, therefore, Abimelech should not have taken her to be his wife. But Abimelech did not know this. He's ignorant of the true facts of the case. He thought she was eligible to be married, and so he says in verse 5, In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I have done this. He didn't know that he was taking another man's wife. He really didn't. And therefore the Lord says to him in verse 6, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I have also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife. Now, the Lord had kept Abimelech from sinning insofar as he kept them from consummating the relationship. But that doesn't mean that Abimelech is completely innocent of sin in this regard. Abimelech had done something that was objectively wrong in taking Sarah. His ignorance that Sarah was married mitigated his guilt somewhat, but it did not absolve him. Just, if you're skeptical about that, just do a little thought experiment with me. If a single man becomes engaged to a woman who is already married, That is something that is objectively wrong. 
He should not become engaged to a woman who is married. And it is obvious and clear, especially if he knows that the woman is already married. But it is still objectively wrong, even if he was completely unaware that the woman was already married. He shouldn't have gotten engaged to her. She's already married. She's taken. She's off the table, so to speak. Now, this man may not have been intentionally being, uh, been being edgy or transgressing any norms in becoming engaged to her, but even still, this should not have happened. And he needs to correct his course of action because of it. He should not become engaged to a married woman. And so the point that I'm going for here, both in that example and here with Abimelech, is that unintentional sins are still sins. And there is a whole chapter, namely Leviticus chapter 4, that is dedicated to dealing with this very thing explicitly. It is a chapter that contains the prescribed sacrifices for unintentional sins, sins that were committed unwittingly or in ignorance. And likewise, in the New Testament, we find Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. In other words, Paul acknowledges that just because he doesn't know of anything in his own conscience that he has done wrong, that's not the standard by which he will be judged. Your consciousness or lack thereof of sins does not acquit you of sins. God is the judge of these things. He knows the truth exhaustively, and you could well be in sin and be sinning even when you don't think you are, even when you are unaware of it. Now, common sense recognizes that all sins are not alike, and uh, the Word of God does as well. Martin Chemnitz expressed it this way when he said, Certain sins are committed out of weakness or ignorance. Some arise from stubbornness, wantonness, intended wickedness, or hardened habits. And we saw this in that passage that we read together in Psalm 19, where David says, Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. The faults weren't hidden from God. God knew them. But they might have been hidden from David. David may not have known them. And then on the other side, he says, also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. You see the, see the difference there, hidden sins versus presumptuous sins. And likewise, Numbers 15, 22 to 31 contrasts sins which are done unwittingly with those that are done defiantly. And I think Francis Turretin was helpful when he, he broke down uh, some of the categories of sin, he said sin is either of weakness or of depravity, either wholly voluntary or relatively involuntary. In the Old Testament, sins committed through error and weakness are distinguished from those committed presumptuously. When the sinner adds to the evil, he perpetrates contumacy and pride by which he sins with full consent and deliberate wickedness and glories in his sins. So errors and secret sins are distinguished from presumptuous sins. And I think that is a, uh, a helpful distinction in remembering that not all sins are alike and that sins committed in ignorance or unintentionally are still sins. And we need to be humble enough to recognize and acknowledge that our knowledge is not the standard of what is right and wrong, and that our knowledge is not the standard by which we will 
be judged. Again, our ignorance might mitigate our guilt somewhat, but ignorance does not absolve us of sin. The old saying is that ignorance of the law is no excuse. So it is with the law of God as well. And I think the practical takeaway here, at least one of them, is the fact that we are more sinful than we know, and also that we are more dependent on the grace of God than we are aware. David says in Psalm 40, my sins are more numerous than the hairs of my head. And that should bring to us then a great humility so that we can say with David again in that scripture we read today, who can discern his errors? David is acknowledging, I can't of myself discern all of my errors. We need the Lord's help. And therefore, we should be quick to say again with David in Psalm 139, 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, Lord, if there is any wickedness in my heart, lead me away from that. Lead me into the way of truth. Even unintentional sins are still sinful. And we need to know that and therefore be humble in light of it, and therefore seek the grace of God for help. Seek the grace of God that he may reveal our hidden faults to us and lead us in the everlasting way. And this brings us then to our second point for this morning, which is hope for repeat offenders. Now, certainly there are differences between the way that things went down for Abraham in Genesis 12 and the way things went down in Genesis 20. But the similarities between the cases are, are many. And this means that the, the sin, the sins, plural, of Abraham were the same in both cases. Instead of trusting in the Lord, there was fear, which Abraham had of being killed. In both cases, right? He's afraid of being killed in Egypt. He's afraid of being killed in Gerar. And that then led to deception concerning Sarah. And while there was truth in the fact that Sarah was his sister and that he was Sarah's brother, nevertheless, this truth was used in such a way as to imply a falsehood. The truth was used to deceive, to deceive in such a way as to imply that single was Sarah, or that Sarah was single and therefore was eligible and available to be married. The sins of Abraham here are the sins of a repeat offender. He's repeating what he has already done. He did it in Genesis 12. He's doing it again here in Genesis 20. In our terminology, we could say that these are besetting sins for Abraham. He had yielded to temptation, sinned in this way once, and then under similar circumstances, he does it again. And this is something that, that we need to consider. It is helpful to us that the scriptures do not mask the sins of heroes of the faith. We see in scripture the, the sin of Noah, right? Him getting drunk. We see the sin of Abraham here in this case. We see the sin of Lot, as we did last week in Genesis 19. We see the sin of Moses, the sins of Aaron the sins of David, the sins of Solomon, the sins of Peter and Paul, and so on. And, and this is helpful, that the Bible is not merely hagiography or a, a piece of writing that, that paints all of our uh, heroes of the faith as holy men, 
who have no flaws. The Bible is truthful in this way. It shows us that even people with true and saving faith, godly people, still have their sins. But the text of Genesis 20 even goes beyond that. It gives us the history of a repeat offender. Now, certainly we see other repeat offenders in Scripture, even godly repeat offenders. We saw Lot getting drunk twice last week. We, saw, uh, in, we see in the book of Judges, Samson behaving badly with women on multiple occasions. We see Solomon marrying many idolatrous women. We see Peter denying Jesus three times. But what we see here in Genesis 20 is a little bit different from all of those other cases in that it doesn't simply tell us that Abraham sinned in the same way that he did before, but rather it gives us this very extended narrative which shows us similarity of the circumstances of Genesis 12 with the similarity of the circumstances here in Gerar in Genesis 20. We see godly men and women sin in Scripture. We see repeat offenders in Scripture, but it is not so often that we see such an extended narrative in which a godly and faithful man repeats his previous sinful actions under such remarkably similar circumstances. It's not so often that we get a narrative treatment that is this extensive of this kind of thing. And so we need, to, we need to pay attention and seek to learn from it. And so what kind of lessons then should we be seeking to learn? Well, I'll mention, I'll mention three. One is that tempting situations often repeat themselves. Tempting situations often repeat themselves. Isn't that the truth? Now, children, how many times have you had a tempting situation that has repeated itself? Just think with me. How many times have you been with a brother or sister or maybe a classmate or something like that, and they have done something to you, made you angry, you responded either with words that you shouldn't have said or by yelling, punching, kicking, something like that. And then maybe mom or dad or maybe a teacher got you in trouble, you had to say you were sorry, maybe there were consequences of some kind or another, and then it was over. Over for a while, but then comes the next day or the next week or something to that effect where the same brother or sister or same classmate does the same thing. And then you're confronted with a tempting situation, a repeat tempting situation. What did you do the second time around? Did you learn anything? Or what about for those of us who are grown-ups? Maybe your spouse says something that is hurtful or offensive, or you feel attacked by their words, and then you say something tough or something that cuts a little bit, or you take some kind of action as a form of retaliation, and then maybe you make up, you talk it out, you ask for and receive forgiveness for what you've done, and then you move on. And then what do you know? The same situation presents itself to you. Your spouse says something hurtful or offensive, and you're back in the situation again. What, what did you do the second time around? Did you learn anything? Or maybe instead of a spouse, it was brother, sister, mom, dad, son, daughter. Or maybe if you're single, it was a coworker, a roommate, Something like that. What did you do the second time around? Or maybe the situation was not so much interpersonal, but still there was an opportunity presented for sin. You had the opportunity to maybe look at stuff or read stuff that you shouldn't have been looking at on a device. It stirred up your flesh towards sin. You felt convicted about it. You confessed it to the Lord and moved on. 
And then another opportunity to do the same thing came around to you. What did you do the second time around? We could surely expand the list, but I trust you see the point. The lives that we lead are similar to Abraham in that we face tempting circumstances, the same type of tempting circumstances again and again. And since that is true, we have to learn how to deal with tempting circumstances. That is to say, we we have to learn from our past. We have to learn from our own personal history. And that's the second lesson that I'll mention here is this need to learn from our own personal history. As most of you know, I love history, right? I love seeing good examples and bad examples and trying to draw some application from past events and so on. But this is the kind of history that you don't need a book for. This is the history of your own past. You ought to be able to look back and learn. You see, when, when we read this chapter about Abraham, we, we're reading the story and we're thinking back to Genesis 12 and we're like, what are you thinking? You, you did all this stuff already back in Genesis 12. This was bad. Did you learn anything? Now, those are fair questions to ask But the truth be told is that we ought to be asking ourselves those same questions. And if those questions are going to have any helpful impact on us, then we have to be looking at our own past with some objectivity. Now, it's easy for us sometimes to look at our pasts and paint ourselves as the hero or or maybe as the victim. And then if we're not careful, then the narrative that we construct in our minds is that we're the hero of the story and therefore we've done nothing wrong. Or maybe we're the victim of the story and have done nothing wrong. Sure, we suffered wrong from others, but we ourselves have been upright at every moment along the way. The other guys in the story, they're the bad guys. But but if we frame the story like that, we're we're actually robbing ourselves of an opportunity to learn. Now, Now, please understand, if you're here this morning and you're the victim of sinful or criminal actions of others, I'm not at all seeking to attach blame to you for sins or crimes that were committed against you. That's not what I'm saying at all. That's not at all what I'm trying to do. But what I am saying is that even real heroes who have conducted themselves heroically and uprightly in the face of overwhelming odds are still sinners. Even victims who have had unspeakable acts of wickedness committed against them are still sinners. They didn't, they're not to blame for what has come upon them at the hands of others, but they've still got checkered past, just like all of us have checkered past. All of us are sinners. And all of us it, need to be looking to our past to see what sins we have committed. And we need to be looking back with objectivity. Even if we have conducted ourselves in the main, uprightly, we still need to be looking back and to see those Pockets along the way where we have not conducted ourselves uprightly. If we're not willing to do this, then we rob ourselves of an important opportunity to learn. If we're not willing to look at our own past with a certain level of objectivity, we're failing to utilize this opportunity to learn from our own experience. And if we're not willing to do that, then we are setting ourselves up for the same kind of thing that happened to Abraham here, right? Repeat circumstances, repeat sinful actions. And so as you seek to look objectively to your own past in the light of Scripture, what are you going to see? Well, you're going to see times in which you've sinned. Sometimes, perhaps, the flesh 
reared its head and you were enticed by the flesh and you sinned. You actually did know better, but sin presented it to itself to your flesh in such an enticing way that you were enticed by it and went along with it. To use the language of Galatians 5.17, the flesh set its desire against the spirit and you chose to follow the flesh and to give indulgence to its desires. Sometimes, perhaps, the situation is similar to that of Abraham, namely that we find ourselves in circumstances in which we are fearful, circumstances in which our faith in God is shaken such that we are not trusting God in the way that we ought to, or we find ourselves in circumstances in which we are not seeking so much to to gratify the flesh, but we're just responding to the situation in which we find ourselves, and we respond sinfully. We speak in anger, or we do worse. We respond with some retaliatory tactic to those who have hurt us, or whatever. And so we need to look at those situations, try to understand what was going on, try to understand why we did what we did in those moments. We need to learn from our past so that we can apply it to the future. Because again, tempting situations repeat themselves. Abraham, as we have seen, had been in a situation remarkably similar to that which he found himself here in Genesis 20. And as these events were unfolding before him, he should have been thinking, wait a minute. This has all happened before, hasn't it? This is where I went wrong before. This is how I should have conducted myself in that previous incident. And if Abraham had been thinking along those lines, he probably would have conducted himself differently than he did here. Had he rightly learned from the sins of his past, he wouldn't have repeated his sinful actions. But he did. And that brings us then to the third lesson which is to be learned here is that a sinful relapse does not necessarily mean that one is devoid of the grace of God. Matthew Henry said it this way. He said, It is possible that a good man may not only fall into sin but relapse into the same sin through the surprise and strength of temptation and the infirmity of the flesh. Let backsliders then repent but not despair. And we might like to think that once a Christian had been convicted of a particular sin and has confessed that sin to the Lord and those uh, to whom he has offended and had repented of it, that that might be the end of that sin in his life. I wonder, would that be if that were in fact the case? But the real world is different than that. The real world is more difficult and complex than that. We live in a world where faithful and godly people sometimes truly do repent of their sins and yet sometimes truly do fall into the same sins yet again. One minister from olden times helpfully pointed out that since repentance takes place in the mind and our becoming opposed to evil, which we were once upon a time bent on doing, that from this there are a couple of things that follow. One, that a man may stop committing a sin that he had formerly committed and yet not really repent of it. Right? It might be a case, just imagine uh, somebody who's, who's up and coming, trying to make their way in life, and they think, okay, I'm going to commit a few robberies just to 
kind of get some cash to kind of grease the wheels a little bit as I'm, as I'm getting going. Makes a few robberies, gets away, and just, just stops. He, he gives it up. It's not that his heart has changed toward, toward robbery and he's truly repented of it. He just stopped doing the robbery. He's not opposed to it under any and all circumstances. He just stopped doing it. That's, that's not repentance. But then on the other side, a man may truly repent of his sins, truly have his heart changed away from sin, which he had been formerly dead set upon committing, turned his heart toward God and wanting to follow God, and yet fall into that sin again. And uh, this pastor said that although the mind may be so changed that its general bent and inclination is towards God, that change not being absolutely perfect in this life, there is no man, however penitent he may be, but may sometimes slip into sin, either by surprise or inadvertency, or else being overpowered with the violence of some prevailing temptation, as is easy to be observed in most, if not all saints that are recorded in Holy Scripture. No man can be said to have repented truly, but he whose mind, hearts, and affections are turned from his sins to God. And therefore, although such a one may sometimes stumble in his walk to heaven, be sure he will soon get up again and walk with more care for the future and with circumspection. For whatsoever infirmities or miscarriages a sincere penitent may be guilty of, none can deserve that glorious title, but he whose mind is so changed from what it was that he truly hates the evil he once loved and truly loves the good which he once hated. And so we can have repentant hearts, and yet sometimes through the violence of temptation and the oppressive nature of circumstances can slip into sin yet again. But on the other hand, sometimes it's possible that some people stop sinning, but yet they don't hate sin. They don't love God. Even as believers, we can stumble into the very same sins of which we have previously repented. And so, again, let's take Matthew Henry's counsel to heart. Let backsliders repent and not despair. The Lord does not and will not turn away backsliders who truly come to him. He says in Jeremiah 3.22, Return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. He says in Hosea 14.4, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. And so Christian friend, if you find yourself like Abraham here as a repeat offender or in a besetting sin, I want you to know that there is grace and mercy for you still. It is to be found in Jesus Christ. It is through him that your faithlessness, your sin, your apostasy, your backsliding will be healed. But you must turn to him. You must repent of your sin. You must confess your sins to the Lord. You must look again to the cross. Jesus died to save sinners and rose again victoriously on the third day. If you find yourself as a repeat offender, look to Christ, look to him sincerely, and continue looking at him. And this applies if you have never yet come to Christ. Because obviously if you've never yet come to Christ, you are still a repeat offender. You keep committing the same sins time after time again. The, uh, the continual pattern of repeat circumstances that 
combined to tempt you into sin are occurring in your life again and again, and you are continuing to sin again and again. If that's you, repent. Look to Christ. There is mercy and grace to be found in him. And there is no other way of escape other than our Lord Jesus Christ who went to the cross. So look to Christ. And this brings us then to our third point for this morning, which is the certainty of the Lord's plans. If you think chronologically in terms of the life of Abraham, this incident here in Genesis 20 came at a critical point in the lives of Abraham and Sarah. The Lord had repeatedly made the the promise to Abraham that he would become a great nation, that a son would come forth from his own body, and the Lord had said that Sarah would be the mother of this child of promise. And more specifically, the Lord had promised on two separate occasions in the very recent past that Sarah would be the mother of this child within a year. You find the Lord's promises specifically uh, related to that event in Genesis 17.21 and Genesis 18.10 and 14. Now we can't say exactly how far the events of Genesis 20 are separated from Genesis 17 and 18 in that the chronology is, is not given to us precisely, but it is very clear that they fall within the early months of that critical year. The Lord was going to return and Sarah would have a son. These events here happen very early on in the months of that year. And you see where this is going then. Had the relationship between Abimelech and Sarah been consummated, the paternity of Isaac would have been questionable, as would have been the fulfillment of the Lord's promise concerning Isaac's having been born of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham's fear and foolishness and sins in this matter could have made the situation somewhat sticky. And I use the word could simply from a human vantage point as we consider what may or may not happen as things appear from our perspective. Obviously and thankfully, God was overruling these events such that Abraham's fear and foolishness and sin did not make the situation sticky. We see here the Lord's sovereign control even over sin. Again, the Lord says to Abimelech, verse 6, I also kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. The Lord was in charge here. And even though Abraham had made a mess of things by being a repeat offender in his behavior here, nevertheless, not even Abraham's sin could thwart the purposes and plans of God. A son was going to come forth from Abraham's body. That son would be born of Sarah. And that son was going to be born about a year after the Lord had given to Abraham the sign of circumcision. It was through that son that Abraham was going to become a great nation. It was through that son that all nations of the earth would be blessed that is to say, it was through Isaac that, and the descendants of Isaac that the seed of the woman would come who would crush the head of the serpent. It was through Isaac's line that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would be born into the world, conceived of the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. And while on the human level, it appears that Abraham's actions here could have potentially jeopardized and derailed the promises and the timeline and so forth, God was not going to permit that. Not at all. The Lord was sovereignly ruling over everything. And while he did permit Abraham to sin, he did not permit him to jeopardize the promise. 
And that's something in which we can take great comfort. Because we look out into the world and we see not only unintentional sins and the sins of repeat offenders who are actually godly men and women, but we see sins on a great magnitude perpetrated in the world on a grand and grandiose scale. It seems in many respects that wickedness is running wild in the world and that it has been completely unleashed. That's the way it can look as we look out at evil in the world or the evil with which we come into contact. It can look like it's completely and literally out of control. That's not the truth of the matter. Evil is certainly rampant, but it's not true to say that it is unleashed because it is on a leash. It is under the control of God, and it is all subservient to his purposes. Asaph said in Psalm 76.10 that the wrath of man shall praise you. God uses even the wickedness of man to accomplish his plans. The wrath of man shall praise you. Indeed it has, it does, and it will. God is still causing all things to work together for good for his people. The Lord has set this plan of salvation in motion and he will save his people. Christ will come again and judge the living and the dead and reward his servants and judge the unrighteous. The Lord will fulfill all of his purposes and plans and you cannot thwart them. Now, by your own actions, you may prove that you don't belong to the Lord. That's certainly a possibility. But you can never thwart the Lord's purposes and plans. And so, yes, let's be warned by what we see in this chapter. Let's be warned about unintentional sins. Let's take heart from this chapter that there's hope for repeat offenders, that there is still forgiveness and grace for all who will come to Christ. And let's rejoice in the certainty of the Lord's purposes, that not even our own sins can derail the Lord's plans. And let's give praise to the Lord that his good plans for his people do indeed stand firm forever. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your kindness and your love. We acknowledge that we deserve none of it, but you are faithful and you are good even uh, to the unworthy, which is us. So Father, we we pray that you would help us, that we would take warning and that we would take encouragement and comfort from this chapter and that you would build us up in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.